0: Examining Ethics with Andy Collison is hosted by the Janet Prendel Institute for Ethics. Hi, I'm Sandra, one of the producers of the show, and with me is Christian, my co-producer. Hi, Sandra. Hi.
1: I'm really excited about the show today.
0: Me too. So, let's get right to it.
1: Here's Andy to tell us more about this episode's topic.
2: Can animals be moral? That's the central question of the show today. I'm excited that Mark Rowlands will be joining us to talk about this. Rowlands is a professor of philosophy at the University of Miami. He's the author of 17 books. His autobiography, The Philosopher and the Wolf, was an international bestseller. We talked to him about his newest book from Oxford University Press, Can Animals Be Moral? Today on the show, we discuss his views about the possibility of animal morality. We're going to discuss the concepts of moral agents, moral patience, Immanuel Kant, motivation, responsibility. Actually,
0: Andy, first, could we watch some really cute videos of animals on YouTube?
2: Cute animal videos on an audio podcast. That sounds like a great idea.
3: I mean, I think it's it's, it's kind of ironic, actually, that YouTube is now becoming the biggest repository of of, of potentially moral behavior in, in animals.
1: That's the voice of Mark Rollins, whom we interviewed about his book, Can Animals Be Moral? He says that watching YouTube videos of animals rescuing one another is actually a pretty great way to start thinking about animal morality.
0: When we talked to Rollins, he was especially struck by a YouTube video of one dog rescuing another.
1: An
2: incredible video this morning of
3: a hero dog that has been seen by hundreds of thousands on YouTube. Last week, the dog was caught on a surveillance camera on a busy highway in Santiago, Chile. Two dogs are on a busy highway in uh, Chile and uh, one dog has been hit by a car and lies unconscious in the middle of the road. This is a sort of big six-lane kind of highway. And a, a great risk to itself, the dog's companion sort of, you know, I kind of cringe my way through this video, actually, but the, the dog's companion weaves its way in and out of the traffic uh, and f- until it gets to the dog, and then it proceeds to sort of pull the dog, using its paws, curiously enough, not its mouth, but oh. using its paws, it proceeds to pull the dog to the side of the road.
0: Yeah, so it's pretty easy to go down a YouTube rabbit hole of animals doing nice things for each other. So if you actually look at the suggested videos on the sidebar of this YouTube video, there are things called Doberman protects baby, dog saves cat from fox, Coco the gorilla cries over loss of kitten. And I feel totally justified watching this stuff because as Roland said, videos like these are interesting because they kind of are this repository of potentially moral behavior in animals.
1: But what's interesting is that This kind of stuff doesn't just happen in these like amateur videos that you can find on YouTube. Um, Roland's also told us about this remarkable um, group of elephants that was observed by some scientists. Um, So the scientists were, they were watching a few different families of elephants. Um, And and before I go on, something you need to know about elephant behavior is that when when elephants reach sexual maturity, they kind of split off from each other on, along gender lines. So the women or the female elephants kind of congregate together and the male elephants kind of congregate together.
3: The, the, the female elephants form what are known as families and um, the male elephants form pods. And um, female the families are very sort of nice, genteel affairs. I mean, the male elephants apparently have keg parties and knock over mailboxes <laughs> and things like that. So there's a, there's a marked difference in behavior, especially at certain times of year.
0: So these scientists are observing a family, or a female group of elephants. They call this particular family the first lady's family. And as the scientists are observing this family, the matriarch, Eleanor, falls ill and is dying.
3: And she's lying on the floor. She's fallen. And uh, Grace, of a different family of elephants, the Virtues family, is trying to help her back to her feet. And she does you know, she, she does this by combination. She tries to get underneath her and lift her up by pushing her with, with her head, basically. And, um, and initially, this is successful. You know, Eleanor manages to get back to her feet but it's no avail. Eventually she falls down again. So Elena st- so, so Grace stays with her for, um, for uh, quite a long time until darkness falls. The next day they return. Grace comes with another elephant called Maui from yet another family of elephants. Mm-hmm. And they both try, try to get Elna back to her feet. But it doesn't work, and, and Elna dies shortly afterwards. Uh, this is all accompanied by a lot of uh, sort of shrieking, uh, sort of distress calls from, from uh, Grace and, uh, and Maui.
0: Okay, so, so what do you think? Are these animals acting morally? I mean, they are acting morally. Is the question whether they know they are? Or are we asking if they can feel empathy? Or if they can be motivated by moral thoughts?
1: Yeah, actually, we're, we're kind of asking all of that. We're also asking, you know, if all of this is true, do animals then have some kind of a responsibility to behave morally? And You know if they behave morally should they be like praised by us before we answer these questions though let's hear a bit about our sponsor
0: oxford university press has generously provided us the books that we are discussing on the show today i talked to andy our host about how he feels about their sponsorship So how excited were you when Oxford University Press wanted to sponsor our show?
2: Uh, I was super excited about this. I was thrilled. When I was a poor grad student, my friends and I, we would go to the APA conference. That's the American Philosophical Association. And they had this book exhibit. And the book exhibit had presses. From all over the world, and most of them would have uh, 50% off sale on the last day of the conference. And so my friends and I would get up, the only time at the conference that we would actually get up early, and we would stand in line, and I kid you not, there would be a line of like 50 to 100 people, and the place we wanted to go was the Oxford University Press book Stanley. That was where the gold
0: was. So thanks, Oxford University Press, for thrilling our host, Andy, with your fantastic sales.
1: Before our break, we were talking about these YouTube videos of animals behaving in what seems like it could be considered a moral way. And Mark Rollins also told us the heartbreaking story of a dying elephant and the attempts of other um, female elephants to try to save her and then the grief that followed after the elephant died.
0: I actually think that that elephant story is especially compelling because a lot of the other ones you find are... Um, adult animals saving a baby animal from another species. Like um, I saw a leopard and he saved a little gorilla baby from, you know, certain death. So these are kind of, they're adorable and they're beautiful, but it makes you wonder whether animals have some kind of programming to our instinctual protection of young animals, like baby animals, where just all have that kind of visceral response. So you could say
1: like, Well, that's, that can't be moral necessarily because it's that innate response that all animals, including humans have towards babies in general.
0: But what, so this elephant example is special because it's an old animal that was going to die anyway. It's not a, it's not a freak incident. It's not out of the ordinary. It's actually, it is ordinary. It's the circle of life Mm -hmm. and the elephants that save her. Sure, they're the same species, but they're not of the same family. They're not of the same group.
1: Yeah, there's a kind of resonance there, right? And Rollins actually uses that particular story to illustrate what he calls moral emotions. Um, So doing things like caring for another animal outside your immediate family, making distress sounds when a fellow animal dies, and and all of that um, could be characterized as moral emotions.
0: But Rollins wants to make it clear that stories like these don't necessarily prove that animals are moral.
3: And so I, I wouldn't want to say that this behavior definitely establishes that animals can act morally. But it does uh, at least, I think, raise the question, is this, is this a, a, a case of moral behavior? And uh, then, then the question is whether you can construct a case for moral behavior out of those sorts of emotions. So, so a moral emotion is one which has as its, its object or its intentional content the welfare of of, of another.
0: So when we see animals exhibiting moral emotions like this, it's difficult not to praise the animal. But if animals can be praised for behavior like this, then can't they also be blamed for immoral behavior?
1: There are actually all kinds of these insane examples of animals being put on trial and punished for their quote-unquote crimes. There's this there's this amazing book written in 1906 that it has details about all these different cases of animals being on put on trial and then actually being punished. Okay, so here are some of the chapter titles. All animals are animated by the devil. Gnats are especially dangerous devils. Vermin excommunicated by the Bishop of Lausanne. Criminal prosecution of field mice. That's just a long... List of of chapter titles of examples of ways in which animals were put on trial for their crimes. There's one story that really caught my eye from 1379 in which they're, they're like a bunch of pigs that are being put on trial for being accomplices to the murder of a child. So three pigs actually killed the poor child, but 200 pigs were sentenced to death because they were squealing. And so the judge claimed that the pigs were, like, rooting for what he called the murderous sows. Crazy, right? Like That's insane. There is a whole long history of humans holding animals responsible, morally speaking.
0: That's insane. But I kind of see where they're going with that, where if you say that an animal can behave morally— it's not ridiculous for your next step to then expect them to behave morally. So while that does seem a little crazy, like sentencing 203 pigs to death, I kind of see how that came about. And it, it's it's weird because it's it comes out of a belief that animals can be moral, which is kind of opposite to how we feel today.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think today we generally agree, I hope. That, you know, animals shouldn't be put on trial, that we shouldn't necessarily even blame them for their actions because they can't really think their behavior through. Like they're not rationally thinking about these things in the same way that a human might. And, and this, this view, right, that animals aren't moral because they can't think things through is pretty standard in the philosophy community.
3: Yeah, that, that's that's the standard view, and it's a view that sort of uh, manifests itself, you know, both both in the work of Kant and also people like Aristotle. Okay, so so the idea is, well, you know, in order to to act morally, um, you need to be able to understand what it is you're doing. You need to be able to weigh your motivations. Think, well, look, I'm motivated to act in this way. Is this a motivation I should uh, embrace, or is it a motivation I I should resist? And, and 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 in deciding that, you bring to bear various moral principles that you happen to hold, and 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 you. Uh, sort of uh, evaluate your motivation in the light of those principles. So that is, you know, that is the standard view of, um, I think, moral action.
0: So what we have here is this idea about morality that's pretty common, both among the general population and philosophers.
1: Right. Yeah. Commonly held idea is that in order to act in a moral manner in the first place, you have to be able to understand your actions. You have to be able to understand your reason for acting the way that you do. Um, And Immanuel Kant is actually responsible for popularizing this idea. So he's got this fairly famous saying, ought implies can
3: the idea goes like this and i think it's a respectable idea in itself i don't think it works in the end but it's 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 quite plausible in order for a motivation to be a moral one it must exert what we what we might call a normative grip on you that is it must be the, for a motivation to be moral it must be the sort of thing you um, you should do or you shouldn't do you ought to do or you ought not to do uh, that's a necessary condition of a motivation being moral it has this normative grip okay but we then bring in ought implies can. Okay. Um, a motivation can't have a normative grip if you're incapable of either resisting or acting on it. Okay. Right. So you should, you, you, you ought to do it, but it makes no sense to say that you ought to do it if you
0: can't. I'm not sure I understand that. Christian, could you explain what you think he means what what odd implies can means yes so I think what Kant
1: is saying is if you're going to make a rule about something a moral rule like you should do this thing then it should also mean that whoever you're making the rule for is like capable of following that rule so if I were your god and I said to you Sandra in order to worship me properly. I'm making a rule about praying that you have to pray for 20 minutes continuously underwater. And then you as the human would say, but I can't breathe underwater for 20 minutes. Right. right? And so for a rule to exist morally, it also should be something that beings are capable of following. Right. Does that make sense to you?
0: Got it. So I, in other words, in order to be moral, we have to know what the right thing to do is. But we also have to be able to do the right thing. Well,
3: it makes no sense to say that you ought not to do it if you can't help yourself. So the idea goes. So, so morality requires normative grip. Normative grip requires control. Right. And um, control, then the idea goes, and this is the idea you find in Kant and Aristotle. Control requires critical scrutiny.
1: So this is why a lot of philosophers believe that animals can't be considered moral, right? Because they might have that motivation to do something right, like we saw... You know, with Eleanor the elephant or in those those YouTube videos of the dogs saving each other, but they're not necessarily moral um, because they're not able to understand or think critically about their moral motivations. So if you, you know, if you can't scrutinize your behavior, it's not under your control.
3: Because the picture is this. I mean, so someone who just has motivations and doesn't scrutinize them is like, is, is at the mercy of their motivations. They're like this cork, right? Bobbing around on the seas of motivation. They're pushed this way and that. But the ability to critically scrutinize the motiva- your, your motivations raises you above the sea. Now you can sort of look down and and see which way you should go and things like that. But, but we never get out. Of the, 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 the my argument then is we never really get out of the sea of motivations. Okay, the s- critical scrutiny is inside that sea as well. So the idea that scrutiny itself gives you control is a very questionable one.
1: So basically all people and animals are corks bobbing in this sea of motivations and they have no ability to influence their direction of movement. They're all at the mercy of waves and the movement around them that's kind of directing them.
0: Right. And that's kind of a metaphor for your environment influencing your decisions and your movements. So everybody accepts that animals are in this sea. They're just corks bobbing along. They can't control their own actions. But what Mark is saying is different is that humans, they too are just corks bobbing along right next to the animals. And the ability to think about your actions doesn't mean that you have power over your actions. He argues people are just as influenced by their environment as any other animal. Can I just say that this is the exact opposite of what I learned in high school to be true? Wait, what's the exact opposite? So I feel like my entire high school experience was teaching me that I was nothing if I couldn't critically think about my own actions. So even if I did all of the good, humane things in the world, if I didn't critically think about my actions, I was literally less than dirt. (laughs) I feel like that's what was taught to me. So to hear someone have this opinion is just, I don't know, it's just like blowing my mind.
1: (laughs) The idea that, that humans might not be as in control of or as like able to scrutinize our motivations as we think we are.
0: Yeah. And really, you could argue that you shouldn't think through every single action. And it would maybe even be immoral to think through every single action. Rollins gives this great example of a burning building with a baby in it. So there's this building on fire in front of you and you know for sure that there is a baby inside that you could easily run in and save.
3: A baby in a burning building, you know, you, you don't think, well, okay, I'm motivated to go and help this baby. Um, is this a motivation I should embrace or is it one I should resist? And, and you know, to, to, to engage in that kind of reflection, those sorts of circumstances would be a sign of uh, well, uh, moral questionability, you know, not mor- not, not moral um, excellence. So I, I, th- I think a lot of the time our, our lives are just, you know, a lot more unreflective than that. We We, we don't do this.
1: Yeah, so basically... We've been talking about, you know, scrutiny of actions in two different ways, right? One, you don't necessarily have to think about or be critical of your action before you do it, right? You can run into the building without thinking and save the baby from dying. But two, it's also important to note that understanding or scrutinizing or being critical of your actions doesn't necessarily mean you have any kind of control over them, right? Even if you are able to stop and think about things, it doesn't necessarily give you control, right? Because you're still in that sea of motivation being tossed about by the waves of your environment. So this means that we can reject the idea, according to Rowlands, that in order to be moral, you have to be able to scrutinize your actions.
0: Right, so it would be wrong to say right off the bat that animals can't be part of the moral realm just because they are not mentally capable of scrutinizing their actions.
1: Right. It doesn't mean that we have to include them in the moral realm, but it also isn't grounds for like automatically keeping them out
0: of it. Exactly.
2: Another common reason philosophers say animals can't be moral is that they aren't moral agents.
0: Ooh, what's a moral agent? And could
1: you possibly explain it to us like we're five?
2: So explain it like you're five. I have a four-year-old, Charlie. I'll explain it like I'm explaining it to him. So if I were to talk to Charlie about the concept moral agent, I would try to talk to him about things that obviously aren't capable of moral behavior. So uh, I would say, you know, imagine if a brick fell off of the top of a house and, and hit you on the toe. It would be weird to say that the brick was a bad guy. It would be weird to say that the brick had done something uh, morally wrong to you, because it's just not the sort of thing that's capable of thinking about moral reasons for and against things. It can't do things for moral reasons. Um, It's just not capable of that kind of thing. So it would be weird to get mad at the brick. Why would it, why wouldn't you get mad at the brick? Well, the brick can't be a moral bad guy. It can't be a moral bad guy because it's not capable of acting on the basis of bad guy or good guy reasoning. People are capable of that. We can act on the basis of reasoning that might be kind of what you might call bad guy reasoning or good guy reasoning. So a brick is not a moral agent because it can't act on the basis of good guy, bad guy reasoning, but a person can. So we say a person, or at least most people who can do that, are moral agents. So the traditional moral landscape is divided into moral agents and what are called moral patients.
3: Moral patient is something that's a a legitimate object of moral concern. It's something you should take into consideration when you're planning on doing something that that impacts on it.
0: And so most philosophers consider animals to be in the moral patients camp.
3: Right. I I don't know who would deny that. I mean, it's, it's one thing to take, say, a chainsaw to a living tree right which 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 may be regrettable in many different ways but it's one thing it's one thing to do that and it's quite another to take it to a living conscious dog for example right. so so this shows that animals are in say the moral club they count morally
1: and when you think about morality some beings are what are called moral agents And moral agents are capable of rationally thinking through what is right and what is wrong. And most humans fall into that moral agents camp, or philosophers put humans into that moral agents camp. And then there are these beings known as moral patients, um, and moral patients can't think through or think rationally about what is right and what is wrong. But even though moral patients can't think rationally about right and wrong, they still have rights. And so the question is, are animals moral agents or are they moral patients?
0: So a lot of philosophers put animals in the moral patients camp. But Roland says we've got it all wrong if we think that animals can either be moral agents or moral patients. The fact that animals can have moral emotions shows that they're a little bit more than being a moral patient. But the fact that they can't scrutinize their actions means that they can't fully fit into the moral agent camp either. And that's not the only problem with saying that animals can be moral agents. According to Rowlands, animals aren't moral agents because we shouldn't hold them responsible for their actions.
3: The, the, the ideas of responsibility and praise and blame are bound up with the idea of being a moral agent. So, uh, so you're, you're a moral agent when you're you're morally responsible for what you do, and so can be morally praised or blamed in a broad sense for, uh, for, for for your actions.
1: So, the great thing about this book and about Roland's work, just generally, is that he carves out this third category.
3: What I was trying to do in 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 that book was. Um, carve out a a sort of third category, the category of the moral subject, which is distinct from both the category of moral agent and moral patient. Think, instead of thinking of a rigid distinction between agents and, and, and subjects, think instead of sort of positions on a spectrum. The, the, greater, the greater a creature understands what's required in a particular situation, then the greater that creature can be either praised or blamed for. Uh, I think animals, you know, just as a matter of empirical fact, cluster towards one end of, um, of, 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 of the spectrum and, and, and adult, normal adult humans tend to cluster towards the other end
0: that's incredible. So instead of having these two groups in sort of opposition to each other, so either moral agent or on the completely other side, moral patient, instead imagine a spectrum with moral agents on the right and moral patients on the left. And this new category, moral subjects, is somewhere in between. And the spectrum is measuring capacity for moral behavior.
1: Yeah. So the spectrum idea helps me see it a little clearer. So it means that you know moral agents kind of have the most capacity, right? Right. They can think about it. They can scrutinize their actions. They feel like they have some kind of control, even though Rollins is kind of arguing that they don't actually have control. Um, and they have the responsibility. They have the they have the most responsibility. Yeah. Moral agents are or who Kant was thinking of when he says like ought implies can, right? And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have moral patients who have the least capacity for moral behavior, but that still doesn't mean that we should treat them like garbage, right? Right. So they still have rights. Everybody on the spectrum has rights. Yeah. And then somewhere in the middle, and it doesn't even have to be directly in the middle, somewhere in between agents and patients is this third category that Rollins has carved out, which is that of the moral subject who has some, but not as much as agents, a capacity for moral behavior.
0: They still don't have any responsibility. They they shouldn't be blamed if they don't perform a behavior morally or behave in a moral way, but they still occasionally they can exhibit these kinds of behaviors.
3: Um, And the idea is that something is a moral subject if it is motivated by moral considerations. Mm -hmm. And on the face of it, 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 it should be that the category of the moral subject is distinct from the category of the moral agent as much as the concept of motivation is distinct from the concept of responsibility and in general i think you know, these are obviously very distinct concepts you can be uh, you can be motivated without being responsible
1: you can be motivated without being responsible that's that's fascinating it makes a lot of sense even with humans so i have i have a two-year-old and he he goes back and forth between like being really nice to me and like, you know, stroking the side of my face and hitting me really, really hard. So hard that sometimes I see stars. <laughs> oh <my. laughs> and and when he does this, you know, he's not just randomly doing it. I can tell that there's motivation there. I can tell that he's doing either one for some kind of a reason. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to hold him responsible in the same way that I might if a grown man, you know, hit me in the way that that he hits me. I should just say I'm fine, everybody. <laughs> He's two. I'm fine. <laughs> I'm much bigger than he is. So so I'm doing OK. But anyway, I, you know, I'm not going to hold him responsible in the same way that I might with a grown man. So let's get back to non-human
0: animals, though. To repeat one more time, so we have this new category of moral subjects That is a useful way of describing animals, but aside from being a useful way to describe something in moral terms, why does this matter?
2: I actually asked him that very question. If animals aren't moral agents, so they're not subject to praise and blame, they're just, in your words, moral subjects, then why does it matter to us and our actions concerning them? How how would it affect our obligations to them? If they can act morally, yeah, no, it's
3: it's 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 a good and it's a tricky question. I mean, and I have to be very, very clear because I've been misunderstood on this before um, in various ways. So, so let me first make it clear, right? That the vast majority of the moral entitlements that animals have stem from the fact that they're moral patients. They're, they're, they're subjects capable of feeling, you know, c- capable of suffering and enjoying life. And uh, therefore, it's, it's incumbent upon us, morally incumbent, to take them into consideration when we do things that impact on them, in ver- impact on their welfare in various ways. So the vast, vast majority of the moral entitlements animals have stem from the fact that they're moral patients. And the issue of moral agents and moral subjects doesn't come into the picture. Now, Sometimes you get people who, who, who like slogans saying things like, you know, well, no rights without responsibility. But I mean, when you think about that for a moment, that's just insane. Um, Babies don't then have rights. For example, young children don't have rights, and so on. Um, Babies and young children are moral patients, but they're not moral agents. And uh, the rights and the the moral entitlements they have stem from their being moral patients. Mm -hmm. Okay, and that I think is true in the vast majority of. in the, in the case of the vast majority of entitlements animals have, that is because they're moral patients. But I, I think that the, the idea of a moral subject does add probably something to, to the picture. Relatively minor, ver- relatively subtle, but it does add something to the picture. And um, if, if we accept the distinction between moral patients, moral subjects, and moral agents, we have to conceptually modify uh, the way we think about praise, The the distinction between moral – I could put it this way. The distinction between moral agents and moral subjects is going to force, I think, a distinction between what we might call praise, moral praise, and moral respect, where the idea is that praise is uh, appropriate only to moral agents or blame being the converse, whereas there's a kind of respect that goes with – being a moral subject, mm-hmm. which is different from the sort of entitlements animals have because they're, they're, they're moral patients. It's a kind of respect that, that's a, that should be accorded them because they're, they're moral subjects.
1: Okay, so let's make sure we're, we're getting this. Because animals are definitely moral patients, they get some entitlements from that.
0: So in traditional philosophy, you get certain entitlements, and if you're a moral agent, you get entitlements, plus you can get praise for your moral actions. So basically, if you are responsible for doing something moral and then you do it, you can then be praised for doing it.
1: Right. And, you know, as we've already discussed, it's it's really silly to try to blame animals for their moral actions, right? right. If you can't be blamed for your morality, you also can't really be praised for it, right? But I think, you know, this third category of moral subjects kind of opens up a realm that's not necessarily praise but might be something closer to respect for their morality.
3: When I first started thinking about this, I, I was sort of organizing it along the lines of um, aesthetic uh, appreciation. Mm-hmm. Now this is where everyone thinks I'm saying animals only count morally because of their aesthetic value. And I'm not saying that, yeah, that at all. Okay. So it's, it's the fact that they're moral patience which makes them count morally, but there's a certain kind of appreciation that, that, that I think should be accorded something that's capable of acting morally. And, uh, I, I used to, I used to have, a, a well, he was sold to me as a wolf. I suspect he was a wolf dog mix, but whatever he was. I to, he, he, he had certain, um, eccentricities, let's call them, which required that I kept him constantly exhausted. So I used to run with him a lot. Mm-hmm. And, um, And, you know, on our runs together, I realized something that was kind of, you know, sort of humbling and profound that I was never going to be aesthetically aesthetically worthy as this wolf when running. You know, I was this sort of graceless ape who was huffing and puffing and thumping along beside him. And he just used to glide along the ground, you know, um, like he was floating above it. I think the, the, the content of that aesthetic respect was something like this. Well, you know, it's a good thing that the world comes to contain creatures that can do this, mm-hmm. that can move like this. Uh, it's a good thing, aesthetically speaking. I think there's, there's a parallel kind of attitude that you have, you, could, you can adopt with regard to the, the creature that's capable of, of doing things like the dog on the highway in Chile, right? Mm-hmm. It's a good thing. It's a thing that's worthy of respect, that the world produced an animal which is like this. So I would model the sort of idea of moral respect along the lines of aesthetic respect without saying that they're the
1: same thing. He sees that this wolf is a beautiful runner and he's like I love living in a world where a wolf run. like there's a creature that can run like this that's built to run and he can like appreciate that. By the same token, there are some actions or some ways of being moral that are just elegant, beautiful.
0: So we can see that sometimes babies and children can be moral, but we don't really expect them to be. And it would be insane to remove their rights just because they can't make the decision to behave morally. That's the same thing for animals.
2: It's worth noting just how radical the idea that animals can be moral is in philosophy.
0: Philosophers have said, you
3: know, very strange things. You know, ever since Descartes came along and said animals, you know, can't think, arguably can't feel, depending on how you, you interpret Descartes, um, Donald Davidson, for example, very, very good philosopher, thought animals couldn't believe anything. Peter Carruthers uh, argued not, you know, in, in the recent past that animals weren't even conscious. These are very, very strange, uh, and I think grotesquely, you know, implausible claims.
2: It's, it's radical in the sense that it attributes a lot to animals that philosophers historically might not attribute to animals. Most people might think that animals deserve a little bit of moral concern because they can feel pain. If animals can be moral, then you might think we have a new, different reason for taking the interests of animals into account. So that's one reason to care about the question. But there's an even simpler reason to care about the question— and Rowlands summarizes that quite nicely.
3: Let's suppose for a second that animals can be moral. They can act for moral reasons or their behavior can be characterized as moral. Then this is, you know, if this claim is true, then it's true and, and, and true claims are things that philosophers should, should, be, uh, should be interested in.
1: Oxford University Press has generously provided us the books that we are discussing on the show today. To find out more about Oxford University Press, visit them on the web at global.oup.com. Oxford University Press has kindly offered to provide you, the listener, with a 30% discount on Can Animals Be Moral? So to get a link for a 30% discount on Can Animals Be Moral by our guest, Mark Rowlands, visit our show notes page at examiningethics.org. And thanks again to Oxford University Press for sponsoring today's show.
0: Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about the topics we've discussed today, visit our show notes page for this episode at examiningethics.org.
1: When you visit, be sure to sign up for our newsletter. You'll be eligible to win a copy of Mark Rowland's book or any other book we give away in the coming months.
2: For updates about the podcast, interesting links, and more, follow us on Twitter at Examining Ethics. If you like what you've heard, please consider rating us on iTunes. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. We'll be taking a break during the month of December, but don't worry, we'll be back with a new season of shows in January.
1: Examining Ethics with Andy Collison is hosted by the Janet Prendel Institute for Ethics. Sandra Burton and Christian Weishart produced the show. The photograph and our logo was taken by Cynthia O'Dell. Our music is by Corey Gray, Lache Swing, and Poddington Bear. It can be found online at freemusicarchive.org. Thanks to Oxford University Press and the Prindle Institute for supporting this show.
2: Agents.
0: Andy, old patients? No, yes. <laughs> oh, and maybe he's saying that because it's—he's saying, "Wow, okay, whoa." I realize why he's saying this. These animals—he already said that they don't deserve praise because they <gasps> equally don't deserve blame. Oh. So, but he's saying, "But there, you can aesthetically respect them." I love it. Yeah, that's why he talks about this.